Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today I am thrilled to say that we are joined by Dr. Anne Ramoyne. Dr. Ramoyne is a professor of epidemiology at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health and Infectious Disease Division of the Geffen School of Medicine. She is the director of the Center for Global and Immigrant Health and is an internationally recognized expert on emerging infections, global health, surveillance systems, and vaccinations. A few things that have been in the news lately. Dr. Ramoyne, welcome. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. So this is largely a podcast where we talk about policy and we talk a lot about where law and politics intersect. And I want to start by asking you something that I get this question and have absolutely no way of answering it, which is if there is an ideal way to pick who gets the vaccines first, if there is an ideal way to roll out this policy what would it be? Would you have advice to our decision makers about what they're doing now, which seems to be kind of healthcare workers and age-based, and then we'll let you know later? Well, it's funny you ask that question. I've been thinking a lot about this topic lately. And I think that the real issue here is that because we have limited vaccine supply and we can't do everything we want to do right now, which is, of course, to vaccinate everybody, we have to make some choices about what's important to us. We have to decide what's important to us as a, as a society. We have to decide if, to what's important to us as a nation and make those choices carefully, but also make sure that when we make these choices, we understand what the repercussions are. This goes back to this you know, there's there's no no good deed goes unpunished. There's no situation here where by making one choice, you're not going to have some side effects. You're not going to have to, to pay the price elsewhere. And so it really comes down to what do we want to do? You know, we have choices. What, have, what do we want to do? Do we want to maximize reductions in hospitalizations and deaths? Do we want to maximize reductions in community transmission? Do we want to open up the economy? Do we want to get our kids back in school? What is it that we want to do? You know, these are, these are all the big questions. So what do we want to do? I know you're asking me, what would I do? But I'm saying it's, it's, it's a really, it's like this existential crisis that we're in. So, you know, I think that, of course, the first thing we have to do is we have to vaccinate those people that are really, really important to making sure that we reduce death and disability. And that's making sure that our health system is going to function. And so we're vaccinating the health workers. That is critical. Now we've moved on to the people who are really, really vulnerable. The people that are going to be dying most likely are people that are first in the nursing homes and then people who are older. But now we're getting into this next issue of who else. And I think that the big issue, the big question, the big policy question that we're having right now is about what about teachers? And that's been a real, a, a real issue you know, my, my personal opinion is that we need to bump the teachers up and we need to bump them up next because if we want to value our, our children, we want to be looking towards the future, we want to be able to, to really get our kids back in school, which will then also 
help our economy because moms are losing their jobs. They're having to step away from the workforce. Families don't know what to do when they don't have childcare. You know, there are these huge repercussions for public health that, that schools do so much. It's how children get fed. It's how children have mental health support. It's how people, how, how children are able to grow developmentally. It's all part of rebuilding our economy, rebuilding our society, repairing this damage in our social fabric. So if it were up to me, what I would do is I would move those teachers up next. I would get them vaccinated. I would get the schools open as soon as possible and and then move on to the next tiers. I mean, that would be the first thing I would do. That is such, I mean, I was obviously going to ask you about this. This is such a hot button topic. And I love the way that you explain the answer, which is it really depends on, in a way, what our goals are. What What's our kind of definition of success or what do we want to prioritize? And that's not necessarily a hard and fast list. And then, of course, on everybody's mind, for all the reasons you, you talked about, is you know, what do we do with schools? And if I could ask you, since we moved on to schools, a little bit more about the science, I feel like I try and really educate myself on what is the latest science with respect to, uh, is there lower transmission between kids? Is there lower transmission from kids to adults? Does it matter what the definition of kids is if we're talking about under five or under 10? But it's a long way of saying, could you provide us with the actual information, not the, I saw somebody posted on Facebook, but the latest information that we have about how kids are transmitting uh, COVID-19 between themselves and then to potentially adults in their lives? Well, there've been a few studies that have informed some of this. And what they've shown is in schools that have been able to do all the things that are needed, that's have really great ventilation, reduced class size, excellent PPE, be able to wear that PPE, um, you know, that they've been able to really reduce the number of cases that they've had in, in schools. To, they've, they've really minimized the, 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 the cases. Now, of course, people still get COVID in the community, um, but there hasn't been a lot of in-school transmission if all of these things are done. And that's great. But the problem is, it's not the same everywhere in the United States. You have to take it place by place. And and certain places might, if you have really low transmission, you might be able to say, okay, why don't you do these certain things that you need to do, these key tenets of disease transmission. You have the good ventilation, you have the PPE, you have fewer kids in a classroom, you know, great you know, social distancing, you take the temperatures, you do, you know, test, you, whatever those things are. And then... In places where you have more transmission, here are the other 10 things that you need to be able to do to be able to ensure that you're reducing spread of the virus. And in places where you have very high rates of transmission, maybe you you have to do these things or you can't open up yet. But it's a sliding scale. It's different everywhere. And it also is going to depend upon what resources are available at those schools. But I think the most important thing we have to remember is none of these things are fail safe. And we do have these more contagious variants coming down the pike. We've seen what would have happened in other countries already. And what's happened is, is even places that prioritize keeping schools open from the very beginning and keeping them open through the pandemic, they have had to close because these variants are so contagious, they really do overwhelm the system very quickly. So, you know, with that all said, one of the other things is, as you say, well, do, does it transmit 
child to child. Well, you know, we do see some transmission, but it's much lower. It's much, much lower in kids than it is in adults. And we're talking about kids that are under the age of 12. Um, from 12 and above, it seems to transmit just as easily as it does in adults. So um, transmission in kids is significantly less, but that's not true for the teachers. And there are many teachers that are out there who are going to be very nervous about going back in. So my my that is why I come back to, well, what can we do? I know we don't have enough vaccine right now. I know we're in a very difficult spot. And I would suggest that what we do is we make the move to say right now, we have, I think there is an estimate of somewhere around 3.5 million teachers of, in public schools in the U.S. I don't know how many staff there are in addition to that. Maybe let's double that. And then maybe double that again for, I, I actually, I don't think there are that many in privates. Maybe there's a, a smaller amount in privates. But let's say there are 10 million teacher and staff, teachers and staff that need to get vaccinated. We do have that vaccine. What if we just prioritized all the teachers and staff? We got them vaccinated. We got them back in schools. We got these schools back open in particular for the younger grades, but then we were able to then with all of these mitigation strategies, be able to open all schools. I mean, I, I just, I think our society would benefit enormously. Yeah, I mean, this is such, this is a seemingly the looming issue along with 15 other looming issues, but because virtually everybody either has a child in school, uh, is affected by somebody who has a child in school is themselves, uh, a child in school. And I, you mentioned other countries and how they responded to uh, the pandemic. And you said, you know, they might have prioritized keeping their schools open, but even they had to close because of the mutations. Were Did the U.S. have a unique in this way response in the sense that we never seemed to prioritize schools, not in the least. We seem to prioritize restaurants, malls, but other places, it seems from my lay perspective, um, essentially shut down almost everything except schools. So were we an outlier or is that just my misperception? I think that this goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, which is that we, we haven't faced the hard truths that all decisions we make have consequences. And, and by, by saying we're prioritizing one group doesn't mean that we don't value another group. It, every group has a reason that they need to get vaccinated and get vaccinated as soon as they possibly can. We need more vaccine. That's the bottom line. But uh, I would say we, from the very beginning, have not put our children in our schools first. And I, I, I think that, that this also goes back to the fact that we haven't had a national strategy and we haven't had these kind of big national conversations about it. And I think that we're going to start seeing a change in all of this. And we already are seeing a change in all of this. And so I, I think it was just an unfortunate um, effect of, of how the pandemic was handled in general, that we weren't able to, as a nation, say, here, here are what our our, our fundamental goals are. This is what defines us as a nation. This is what our core set of priorities are. And as such, we're going to, in all things that we do, prioritize these things because we know they are part of our core value system as a nation. I think we've been so fractured. It's been very hard to do that. Do you have optimism that that's starting to happen on the national level? I do. I do. I think that we do have an opportunity um, with 
the the new administration coming in um, with the new freedom that that we're going to have for scientists to be able to have dialogue. I think that I think that we will, but you know, I, it it doesn't happen overnight. Nothing happens overnight. We all are so impatient. I know we're all impatient. We all want this pandemic to end. We want it to end as fast as it possibly can. Unfortunately, uh, the virus isn't done with us yet. So uh, we, we, we still have a ways to go. And so we have time to have these discussions and to, to prioritize. And, to, and I think that everybody just has to remember that, that, that nothing is going to change overnight. It's like turning a, a big battle tanker. It takes a long, it takes, it takes time and it's going to be a wide berth uh, to, to turn, to actually make, uh, to make a change. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sure you've seen as well, there are all these, what are we going to do after the vaccination? And my feeling is, uh, well, I'll continue to wear a mask and I'll probably feel a lot more comfortable at my next dental appointment that I've been putting off. But other than that, you know, I'm not sure that much in the short term. Um, as you said, you know, change happens very slowly, particularly when um, now we're dealing with mutations. And um, there's a bunch of things I wanted to pick up on with you. But one thing I wanted to make sure that we don't forget is, of course, the, it seems to me that in this question of vaccine distribution and equity and inequality, there's kind of the front end and the back end. The front end we talked about a little bit, which is who gets it first. And we talked about healthcare workers, elderly teachers, and then the, the back end is, and how do you get it to them? Could you talk to us a little bit about you know, whether you think, like, what would your ideal mechanism be for trying to get the vaccines to the right people. I, I've just read so many stories that show gross socioeconomic and racial inequality in terms of who's getting the vaccines. And I'm kind of, again, as a layperson grasping for, is there a better way here? I think it's been very, very difficult in trying to, to get all of this done so quickly and without a national plan, without a without adequate vaccine to be able to, to do this. But we have really failed uh, to, to get the vaccine to our most vulnerable. Uh, and, and we've seen over and over again these studies showing that the, the vast majority of vaccines um, have not gone to populations that are um, in dire need and um, who are dying more quickly, who have the, a greater risk for, for more severe outcomes, um, black and brown communities. It, it, it's really, I, I think that this, this pandemic, the, the, the vaccine rollout, all of it has just lifted the, the curtain and shown a spotlight on how systemic this, these problems are and, and how this, this kind of access to care, access to vaccines, access to testing, access to PPE, access to, to, to healthcare in general um, is, is a problem that, that we need to fix. And again, this goes back to, and I think where we'll see a difference, um, hopefully coming forward is this fundamental examination of who are we and what do we want to be and how do we want to be. So what do we do? I think we have to, to, to think about how do we get these vaccines into, into communities? 
I, you know, you, you have to go, the vaccine has to go to where the people are. The people don't, ha- don't, can't have to come to where the vaccine is in these scenarios. That means we need to have mobile clinics. We have to have clinics set up right in communities that need them. People shouldn't have to go through these lengthy online processes to be able to find a way to get a vaccine. You know, I've, had to, to navigate it for my for my mom and it's it's it, you know even here in Los Angeles she's 79 years old it's you know she needed to get vaccinated uh and and it was very hard you know she's fairly savvy with with computers but having to sit there and constantly refresh pages and figure out which place you can go to and when you can go and go through the process of an appointment I mean it's daunting for 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 any person to be able to go through that um, but but pe- there are many people don't have computers or access to 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 computers, uh, or to have the patience and the understanding or the 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 wherewithal to be able to go through the the system. And so I just think that that the the deck is stacked against the most vulnerable people, and we have to reshuffle that deck of cards as quickly as possible. Um, bring vaccine to people where they are. Find ways to streamline the system. Um, you know, get uh, the the right messages out that resonate with the people who are hesitant um, and from within the community. These are all things that we need to do. And of course, it's easier said than done, but we need to start doing. <laughs> I think it's so important that you've talked about these issues of access to healthcare, access to vaccines, and situated us in the, a bigger place, which is that in so many ways, I think the pandemic has brought into stark relief all of the inequalities in our society, I, just inequalities in terms of who can stay home, who can order food, uh, who can sit on their computer if they're tech savvy and make an appointment. And I also um, made the appointment for my mom. She did. She will tell you. End up with the appointment that worked out, she made for herself. But the joke among her friends, all of whom have graduate degrees, was which one of your kids made the appointment for you? And um, that's a that's a difficult way to try and gain access to a life-saving vaccine. Uh, which brings me to another topic, and I, I'm hoping you can help dispel a myth. I think most people who listen to the podcast probably don't need to hear this, but um, do you feel entirely comfortable telling essentially anyone in your life, get the vaccine and, and maybe get any vaccine that has been, that has received emergency approval by the FDA? I do. I feel very confident having spent a lot of time looking at the data, listening to the, the meetings uh, that, that have been held at the FDA, uh, also speaking to colleagues sitting on conference calls about the vaccine and the vaccines that are coming down the pike. You know, we, I, I definitely believe in vaccines. I believe, I believe in the process. Uh, and, and I've been very impressed to see so far um, the, the way that, that we have um, been able to develop rapidly vaccines that are very safe, very effective, and, and, and I think that the, the proof is in the pudding. So far, we've given 44 million doses of this vaccine here in the United States, which is just incredible. In the last week, we averaged 
one and a half million doses per day. And there was there was one day where I think we gave 2.1 million vaccines in a day. I mean, this is really incredible. And the other thing that people have to really understand here is that there have been so few adverse events. And that is something we have to focus on. What about long-term effects? Obviously, there's no way to know. And I personally feel very comfortable deciding that the long-term effects, if there are any of a vaccine, I will take as opposed to the long-term effects of the virus. But what's a better response that that I could give other than, look, we know the virus is bad and we know in the short term you want to avoid it. I, you know, I hear people say, but nobody knows what's going to happen for people who took this vaccine in a decade or two decades. Well, I mean, you know, these vaccines are technology that has been in development for two decades. Uh, These vaccines are extremely safe. I think it is hard for people to know exactly what to say, except that you have to look at the data, you have to look at the evidence, and you also have to, to make a risk calculus. And that is, is it, do you want to risk getting COVID-19? Uh, even for, for younger people, it, you can be very serious. It can result in death. There's long COVID to think about versus this idea that, that there could be some kind of long-term side effect that uh, people fear. But I, I don't even think people know what they're fearing Right, what what that long term side effect is? There's no evidence of of long term side effects from these kinds of vaccines, and it is a very it's you know it's it's a difficult needle to thread. Well, what are what are people afraid of? What specifically are people afraid of, and how we can answer those questions and answer them with science, and and in a way that resonates. But but I think it really does come down to this important point that. The risk of getting COVID and the potential side effects or potentially passing this virus on to others, being part of a, a transmission chain that could result in illness or death, is far greater than the risk of a side effect from this vaccine. I appreciate that response. I think the next answer that I'll ask you when we're done taping is uh, what sleep remedies could I could I possibly take? Because I totally I totally agree with you. I mean, this is I don't want COVID, and I have been motivated by the fear of that. And I think other people are motivated by a fear of the unknown. And both doors are the unknown, right? Uh, in terms of will you have a mild case of COVID or will you have a a bad outcome? And um, but I think that we know a lot more about the vaccine. And I really appreciate that you point out here that this is not new technology. This is old technology used for a novel virus. And I think that's important for people to remember. And um, with that, one more substantive question here. I hear this phrase, the new normal. Can you explain what you think the quote unquote new normal looks like and when we might achieve it? I mean, will we ever get back to January 2020 where we just walked into huge indoor events with reckless abandon, really thinking almost nothing of things like aerosolized particles and airborne transmission? Well, I think that that basically describes the new normal right there and then, right? I don't think that anybody will... The new normal is being aware of the importance of viruses and 
bacteria even, I mean, we won't just say it's just viruses. It's being aware of the importance of what's around you and really paying attention to those signals. And, and, and will we ever go back to thinking that we aren't susceptible to what else is around us? I, I don't think that we'll ever go back to that. I think it's important that we remember that that we're all interconnected. We're more interconnected than we've ever than we've ever been, and that an infection anywhere is an infection everywhere. And that isn't just about COVID. I mean, that was always the case. It, it that, that that truth hasn't changed. It's just that now we're much more aware of it, and we can and our all, everybody's life has been affected by it. Uh, whereas previously we were all getting little respiratory viruses that were passed that way previously, it just didn't freak us out the same way. We didn't understand. And now we understand. And so as a result, I think that life will change. I think life will change in many ways. The same way life changed. We, you know, the last time we had a new normal was after nine 11 and nine 11 is a perfect example. I've heard this example before I'm making this example but but other people have made it before me, so I'm not taking credit for this example. But the example would be that today you go to a, a, an airport and you take your shoes off and you go through extensive security. Um, you know, kids that were that that were born, you know, only a few years after 9/11 don't really even understand why we do this. It just is what it is, and it's our new normal. It's the same that we used to go, we used to go meet our, our loved ones right at the gate and hug them and take them right off the plane. I mean, that just isn't even something that's, that's out there in our reality. So our, our normal has shifted. We have a new normal and the new normal will be a, a, a more sterile uh, normal, uh, um, uh, you know, for, for better or for worse. Um, we'll probably have fewer respiratory infections, uh, fewer cases of influenza. Uh, because we know wearing masks and hand hygiene matters. We know that you don't want to be around somebody who's sick. Uh, it's going to be less acceptable for somebody to come to the office or go to a party or something else not feeling well. I think that all of these things are part of our new normal. In my defense, I feel like I was an early adopter to the new normal because I was extraordinarily, to use your phrase, freaked out about germs prior to COVID. So this has really been um, an amusement park ride for me to finally uh, have this come to fruition. But I, I think you're, I think you're right, and I think the nine eleven analogy is right in the sense that now we don't think twice about quote unquote extra security. It's just normal security, um, and we will probably confront the same things. Um, and I don't know when the next time I go into a very large indoor space will be, but as you say, it's a bit of a tanker truck and we will reach those milestones incrementally. Um, we have learned a lot from you. Now I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. We always end the podcast with three hopefully fun questions. Uh, the first, which famous person dead or alive would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? These questions are actually the toughest questions that you could possibly <laughs> ask me. And, you know, I, I really, I look up to so many people and there, there, you know, there's some, some, some really obvious answers that are out there. I have, I have, you know, 
there's so many people that I would I would love to 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 meet and love to learn from. Michelle Obama is a perfect example of somebody that I think all of us, or so many of us, would line up to to meet uh, alive and 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 learn from, and just all of her positive energy, her positive thinking, her ability to break down very tough concepts and be able to to share them with people. Uh, just her message in general. She's somebody I would, but, but, but I think, you know, truly, and it's, it's, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know if we, if we were talking about who, who was, who a, a person that, that has passed that I would want to, to sit down with. Um, it, it, there, there's a really long list. Uh, but, but I would guess, you know, I guess I have to just stick with Michelle Obama for, for this one. She's somebody I would love to, to meet and and have dinner with. <laughs> I I actually really appreciate that the first answer was that these questions were hard for you because of course for the rest of the world tackling really big existential epidemiological questions are really difficult because as you say these questions about how we tackle covid really is who are we as a society and what do we prioritize? Um, so, so I appreciate the transparency. But um, <laughs> I, I do have one other person, though, and it's, yes. it might be a little bit uh, – most people probably won't know who this person is. But the person that I the, – the, so the first person I thought of was Michelle Obama. The other person that I thought of was Johnny Clegg. And I don't know if you know who Johnny Clegg was. I think there was a Johnny Clegg musician. Johnny Clegg musician. Johnny Clegg was a South African musician uh, and had the first biracial band in South Africa and was just a hero uh, in in South Africa, revered by South Africans. And his music was really just inspiring and about uh, the struggle uh, for... and, and, And I have been a Johnny Clegg fan from the very beginning. Uh, my, my undergraduate degree actually at Middlebury was, was music. And I did my senior project on South African music as a form of political protest and, and did this whole thing on Johnny Clegg. He's always been a, he's a hero of mine. And then having been a Peace Corps volunteer, his lyrics just resonated with me being a Peace Corps volunteer in Africa and, and, and really seeing uh, what, what he sang about, but, but just, I I think having somebody who was able to go from studying something to living something so true and so important and being part of using pop culture to really affect change and make a difference, uh, on, on a national and international scale. Um, unfortunately he passed away, I think it was a year ago from pancreatic cancer, but I, I, I would say that Johnny Clegg would probably be the one person that, that I really think about that I think, gosh, I always wish that I could have met him and spoken to him. You have fulfilled every uh, hope and dream of these questions, which is we have learned so much about you already in just the first answer. So I'll rapid fire through the next ones. You're stranded on a desert island and you can pick one meal to bring with you. What is it? I would bring tacos with me. <laughs> I, would bring, I would bring tacos, uh, 
preferably from El Tarasco in Manhattan Beach, which is my favorite place to get tacos. Um, I've, I've been thinking about that for a long time. Uh, you know, during the pandemic, I haven't eaten out quite a, quite a bit, but real excellent Mexican tacos. We just got the taco answer from uh, Representative Norma Torres uh, this week, actually. So it is uh, it is in the ether, and I am a uh, Southern California native, so I totally echo that one. Uh, and last question, you get one superpower for one hour. What is it and why? Oh, this one was so tough. I was thinking about this, and I know I'm supposed to answer rapid fire, but uh, I... Gosh, I don't even know what my superpower would be. Um, I'm failing on this question. I actually don't have a great answer. How about explaining really difficult scientific concepts to a broad audience? That would be an excellent superpower. If I could only have that superpower, I would love to have that superpower. I think we also fulfilled that one during this episode. Dr. Anne Ramoyne, thank you for passing judgment with us. It's a real pleasure. All right. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the show on Twitter at Pass Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. And you can find Dr. Moyne on Twitter at A R I M O I N. I follow her. It's very informative, sometimes scary, but always accurate. Thank you to the listeners. We will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>